This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll react to England's 3 all draw with Germany at Wembley. Six games without a win for Gareth Southgate. But do they take a big slice of positivity with them to the World Cup? Speaking of positivity, Steve Clark and Scotland make their way into the top tier of the Nations League and earn themselves a Euro 2024 playoff. We'll look ahead to two big games in the Premier League, the North London Derby and the Manchester Derby, as well as choosing our alternative Player of the Month nomination. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. And with you guys for the next, I don't know, 45 minutes, hour or so. A lot to get through, so let's try our best to, to whiz through it all. Uh, now, six games without a win for Gareth Southgate's England, but there was a small crumb of positivity. That came from the fact they were two goals down against Germany before securing, if you like, a three-all draw at Wembley. Let's call it that. A, a second-half showing of of positivity for England because there was less football but more passion and more excitement and that got the England fans going and that is what it's all about isn't it Tom Clark so now despite the fact it's been six games without a win we're all happy with Gareth Southgate you know we didn't lose to Germany at home I mean I was happy before Hugh to be honest I was delighted on Monday's show but we recorded with you and Alison having to listen to the nonsense that you two were coming out with about his time in charge which is why I'm relieved to have brought my favourite Scott along to help me talk some sense into you you have to also remember that you would have been doing a very different intro about one of the great comebacks of all time had it not been for a Nick Pope blunder so yes you're saying six games without a win yes you're saying oh it's a draw but look, that would have been very impressive if they turned that around. And listen, I reflected on our conversation slash argument that we had on Monday and decided that I was too nice to you. I was far too nice to you, and Alison. <laughs> you are both talking absolute nonsense. I've thought again about the kind of talent argument that seems to be going round and around, and I just challenge listeners to kind of genuinely sit and kind of list English players that are kind of world-class slash top Champions League level. And I reckon you get a list of about six or seven players, Kane, Sterling, I love Kyle Walker, a lot of other people don't, Foden, and then you maybe get Stones, Trent and Bellingham in there. That is not a team. England have good players, yes. They have young, talented players, yes. Gareth Southgate has to sort out a system. The last two games have shown promise in the sense of system that involves Jude Bellingham. He, he was excellent. Um, in the Germany game. I thought there were other positives. I thought Luke Shaw had his best game that I've seen for a long time for club and country. I thought he was excellent uh, on the left-hand side. Another player that seems to play better for England than he does for his club. So, yes, I mean, I'm not going to descend into jokey arguments and things. I genuinely believe that Gareth Southgate is the right man for England to go into this World Cup. I think he just needs to settle on his system. And I think there were positives from that Germany game. So I'm going to hand it over to my favourite Scott to uh, (laughs) remind all the listeners again why... England fans have completely lost the plot. I've been saying it for years. <laughs> <laughs> You're all mental. <laughs> look, look, you, you, you've been given more, uh, more uh, kind of ammunition for for Southgate in recent weeks and months. And look, this wasn't a, this wasn't a bad performance. And I actually think the last twenty minutes, it's like uh, clearly you can you can have an argument about they had nothing to lose. But when you when when he threw on Mount and Saka, I think it was just a little bit closer. Johnny Rusker thought about this in after the game. It was closer to what he what his vision for this this system and how he wants England to play. It looked far closer to that. I think to have, you've got to have two kind of players that are like little schemers between the lines to play in behind Kane. 
And I'm kind of drifting about whether that is Raheem Sterling. I actually, you know, there's always been a huge clamour for Foden. He's not done a great deal in an England jersey. I, I would probably lean towards Saka still. And Mount has always really stepped up for England too, I think. It, okay, not always, but he's been he's been a lot better than, a lot more consistent than, than many players. So that's one thing I learned. The other is that like, Bellingham's a starter now. That's not kind of groundbreaking thing to say, but I don't think that was something we would have said before this. Absolutely nailed on before this this uh, window. Beyond that, I, I, I kind of not not much has changed. I think you're you kind of Southgate is not going to veer away from his formation. We can have that go round and round the the houses with that. I think it's just about getting behind them. And I also think that England will give anyone a game. That's what this game showed. They will give anyone at the World Cup a really really tough run for their money. And like I don't know what else you can ask for, mate. I don't they know where else you can ask They were 2 0 down at home, and in the World Cup, they would lose that game. Let's be realistic here. In the World why, Cup, why would they lose, lose that in the World Cup they... and they, they drew it? Like, why would they first, lose why? First things first, Timo Werner is not going to be playing for every other team, okay? The wasted opportunities, the wasted chances. England, England had wasted Germany. chances. England had wasted chances. In the okay, first half, you like, counter attacking, they had if, wasted chances as well. If you, if you like, if you like, but ultimately they were the team that scored two goals and they were the team. If we went 2-0 we up and drew three all, would it be a good result? No, but I don't know why that means England no. won't, won't come back from 2-0 down in a World Cup. Well, they might come back from two goals down in a World Cup because they have plenty of good players. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't take that performance and say, oh, if they go to the World Cup and play like this, you know, that there's positives, there are positives from it other than they showed spirit, which, by the way, I do think is a big component of international football. But, but, they, but they showed tactical changes as well. And as Gregor alluded to, with Mount and Saka, you've then got two players, as Gregor said, I found myself thinking it as well, particularly about Mason Mount, that, He's just more Southgate than some of the other players, potentially well, he, even more than Phil Foden, and that and that's a positive because you then go into those games going, "Yep, Mason Mount." No, listen, hold on a minute. I thought you would come to this podcast apologising to me, not not doubling down. Absolutely not. You're wrong, and I'm who, waiting for Alison Rudd's apology as well. Who said stop trying to play football? Get it wide, get it in, and get bodies into the box. England move the ball faster. Not it was me. me. It was me. They moved the ball faster. They moved the ball more directly. If you look at Luke Shaw's goal, it's just a ball tossed into the box, but Bellingham no, makes the run and he makes the, the run box. with Come urgency on. into the box. It is. It they were, they were playing through the lines largely thanks to Jude Bellingham. You know, this system is heavily reliant on Jude Bellingham. It's not just a case that Jude Bellingham is starting. If he's going to play this kind of 3-4-1-2 or 2-1, it's heavily reliant on Bellingham breaking play is, and counter-attacking. They also they played a lot try. of... They weren't... Come on, man. They, they weren't knocking try. it no, wide listen and sticking it in listen the mix. They weren't. Listen to my point. They didn't try to play special football. They gave themselves a basis in, in that game to work off... I know a lot of people hate three at the back, but that was the basis for it. They worked off it. Bellingham had the best game he's had in an England shirt. That's fair. But actually, yep. when you look at what we what we were talking about in the last game, and I know I was saying get Ivan Tony in there, that's a totally different discussion. But ultimately, the approach was we knew we weren't going to outplay Germany through dominating possession. We weren't going to get 60% of the ball against them. So what worked well for us, exactly what Alisson said, they turned it into a Premier League game. It finished three all, for God's sake. They played to their strengths for half an hour of that game and they yeah. scored three goals. That's for me, and you know I'm a naysayer, that was the big positive that we weren't we we realized 
we weren't going to outpass the likes of Gundogan in the in the midfield for Germany, or, or if Kroos had a played a player like him, you know, we know we should know what we are by now, and it's not that 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 half an hour. That is what England are. That is how they can score goals. That is how they apply pressure. Saka picks up the ball, turns and runs, interests defenders, makes defenders think, makes them commit. Instead of us trying to pass our way around everyone else or think that we're Spain understand that we're not, play to our strengths, which ultimately you said we've only got six or seven top players. Brilliant. Give them the basis to go and show themselves. Mount, late run into the box. Bellingham, late run into the box. Causing havoc, causing goals. Exactly what we wanted to see. That is the reason to be excited. When has Galatasaray's England been anything else other than Exactly. That? They're pragmatic, which is what I said on Monday. We're all in agreement. We're all happy. There are times where they dominate the ball and stuff, but that's usually against lesser opposition. Yeah, and like, yeah. you, you might see a different formation. So that's exactly, yeah, this is this is England. But England, England expects, England wants something else. They want to be Spain. They want to dominate which the game. Which is where the deluded conversations about land, talent, yeah. talent so, come from. It so doesn't just accept, matter. Accept Pragmatism and you, passion. Team Gareth, we're going to do it. One, yeah. like you know, what? Let's let, yeah, let's let's all have a nice time. Let's get on. We're all pals. <laughs> but there's one one question I did want to ask Gregor, because um, I thought obviously I mentioned that I would include Kyle Walker in my kind of world class Champions League level type player for England, and I thought John Stones looked good bringing the ball out. I think he'd clearly been told that as a tactic. You know, you can be a ball carrier while he was on the pitch. If you know, Gregor, you said before that you're not going to change his tactics now. I assume you think that means he'll go three at the back with this system. Who, who, in your expert opinion, would be your three defenders? Because obviously there's a lot of chat about Harry Maguire, lots of discussion. You know, does Walker go on the right side of that three? Is it Stones? Is it Dyer? You know, who would your three be in defence? I mean, it's tough. It is pretty tough when you look at your options there. I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about Maguire and a lot can happen between now and November. If he's still not playing, there's no way he can play. And like uh, in his current sort of crisis of confidence, there's no way he can play anyway. So some, something big has to change. Like it could possibly, and then I don't think it would take much for Southgate to to include him. But for me, I would put Walker on the right of the three. I think he's done well for England there. He's quick enough. He's 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 rapid. He's great at making recovery runs. I think Dyer probably has played his way into a starting pair, partly because of good form and partly because there's not really anyone else. And then Stones probably on the left, so that's that would be my three. Again, we've, we've said this for a long time. That's your biggest weakness. You can talk about having someone uh, in the in the kind of Gundogan Busquets, someone that kind of position that role for mm. England. That the absence of that player, yeah. that's secondary to the absence of decent centre central defenders. Yeah. Absolutely, because you can play, you can adapt the system, which is what Southgate has done to kind of to make light of that fact. But you can't do much when you've when you've not really got top quality central defenders. It's yeah. it's it's uh, that's your biggest worry. Absolutely, I'm happy with that three positivity. Let's go, Hugh. The other thing I did find myself agreeing with you about watching this game, and I alluded to to it there with a mention of Mason Mount, was that you said in our heated debate around what formation you would pick that you would pick. I think it was either a one-two up front or a 2-1 have you changed your opinion on that at all and like who would those three players be in those in those roles how how do you see that mapping well, out well listen i was talking about exactly what i alluded to a few moments ago getting bodies into the box so I, and i spoke about i guess the presence of ivan tony and what he offers but i think and you guys have you know you've alluded to it already 
I think this formation, this 3-4-3 that Southgate wants to play might work best for him with two players behind Harry Kane. Those players have to be able, in my opinion, because we've got the wingbacks, to play in a more narrow sense. Yeah. Does that mean that people who are who prefer to play out wide get left out and that we mm-hmm. pick, pick almost two number 10s, two attacking midfielders behind Harry Kane? Because that gives us more presence in midfield. And as long as those players join in with the attack, it's a huge positive. That's again, it's not Raheem Sterling, like you said. Mm. So that's a huge question mark for for South Gareth Southgate, whether Sterling fits into that system because there are a load of quality players. You know, Jack Grealish, he does his best work off the touchline coming in from wide, would you say? Could he play more narrow? Phil Foden, again, I agree with you, hasn't been incredible in an England shirt as yet. Saka, done great stuff from wide for Arsenal so far this season, but looked okay playing um, in, in a more central position. it's you know, There are so many players there that I think it's probably best that you go with the two and one because as I've described, there are so many options. Who the two are, who the best two are at that, I haven't got an answer for. Not right <laughs> now anyway. I don't know what you two think. I mean, I found myself thinking... I don't think there is thinking- an answer. Yeah, I, don't, I agree. I don't think there is an answer. They're like, you're going on form. You, look at, you wouldn't have said Mason Mount because he's been really pretty poor for, for Chelsea this season. And he came on and he's, he just got a moment like that. And he and as Tom said, he is more of a Southgate player. You've also got to flip it the other way and see who's going to press from the front and who's going to who's going to snaffle, snaffle space and win possession back. That's what Bellingham has done so well. You saw some of the breaks in the, in the first half, I think it was. He was always the one sliding in. Even if he didn't win the ball, he was like unsettling a player. And the second, someone else came in and won the ball. Mount does that as well, really well. So I think there's a good chance Mount will play if he's kind of in decent form, decent enough form before then. And then I'd say it's between Foro and Saka for the other one. I don't think Grail should play in that system. Personally, I would go. For, I think I would go for Saka. Foden and Mount for me, I think, for the reasons that you've outlined, and just to pick someone. And I think you've got options of pace like Saka, Sterling coming off the bench. So for the big comeback in that quarterfinal against France, it's coming home, lads. Someone call Atomic Kitten. It's all fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> okay, all right. Positivity off the back of six games without a win, I'll repeat, for England. Relegated from the Nations League, but, you know, going off to the World Cup with a bit of positivity is what we wanted. So what I wanted, I was tweeting about before the game, didn't really matter about the result, needed a performance, needed something to, to cling on to as we went to a tournament. And I think, I do think we got that. So I was going to say, maybe in the World Cup, you can, you know, lift your spirits a bit, getting ready for the next Nations League campaign, because that's where it is at, lads. The yeah, Nations League. <laughs> speed it off. We know what's coming. But just finally, 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 we're having this debate in the office, and a lot of Times readers have been having this debate as well, around this kind of topic that I'm slightly obsessed with. English talent, they've got so much talent. And one reader online pointed out that actually, I don't know whether they have got that much top-level talent. So we challenged some of our writers to pick a World Cup squad of squads, i.e. of nations going to the World Cup, you can pick a squad. And it was fascinating to see, including our good friend, Alison Rudd, who's been banging on about English talent. She only put two English players in her squad of all nations. Lots of others. Tony Cascarino picked three. Paul Hurst picked two England players. James Gearbrandt, two. Martin Hardy, two. Charlotte Dunker, two. You know, and it was those names, I think, the picks for Kane, the picks for Trent Alexander-Arnold. Kyle Walker got in a couple of times. Jude Bellingham once. You guys, if you, I, I know I'm coming to you a little off the cuff, but off the top of your head, top-level England players in a World Cup, pick every nation how many England players would get in. It depends. Come on, <laughs> it really man. De- 
Go. This is in a squad. This is in a squad, not a starting. A line. World Cup squad of squads. So squad. made up, made up of the nations that are going to Qatar. Well, Harry Kane. Uh, does he? I mean, how many strikers are you going to take? People are picking Benzema. They're picking Lewandowski, Ronaldo, Messi, Mbappe. Can getting in that list? He gets in four. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Okay. And beyond that, yeah, it's tough. Listen, I wouldn't underrate Raheem Sterling. To be perfectly honest, um, that's true. His impact in a 26-man squad at a World Cup, I think you would take a player like him. He might not be in your starting eleven, but but for sure. We've got some good defenders. Yeah, um, I agree with you on Kyle Walker too, Tom. Yeah. Like he's got experience at every level and yeah. his, his pace is just like such an asset as well and he's flexible. He's, you know, I would say Kyle Walker could probably get in that as well. Yeah, but you know what? We asked this question. You could ask this question about a lot of countries. You know, and, and agree, they but that's what they did. And it's, you agree. should go and check, you know, listeners should go and check out the piece as well. It's really interesting to see when challenged, who, what players come up, what nations. I think England actually finished in terms of players picked how often. And we, you know, England were fourth in terms of total picks. France, Brazil, and Portugal came out as a top three. England finished fourth in the list of how many players were picked and how number, many number of times. Germany fifth. So, you know, it's just interesting, all this kind of conversation. That's not to say England don't have talented players. I'm just saying I think it's worth considering when you think yeah. about the highest, highest level of football, which is what the World Cup is. Maybe that's where England are at. And that you don't, that you, you know for certain you've, you're not going to get a central defender or a midfielder in, the, in, the, in that squad. That yeah. kind of says says a bit, quite a lot about two very important parts of your team, the spine of oh, your team. Goalkeeper. You're going yeah. to get a fullback in. And you're going to get Harry Kane in. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So we brought it down. There was positivity for all of about three minutes. <laughs> no, it's, this is this is the pragma, pragmatic, low expectation England that we want for the World Cup. I'm telling you. The Nations League is where it's at, according to Gregor Robertson. And I wonder why he would say that off the back of England's relegation from the Nations League, no less. Well, that is because... His mighty Scotland have been promoted to the top tier of the Nations League. Unbelievable for Steve Clark and his side. Injury hit as well. They did so, and by the way, earning that Euro 2024 playoff place after a pretty brave display, let's call it that, clinched the point they needed. It finished goalless in a game that took place out in Poland and, and followed up on their 2-1 win over the Republic of Ireland last weekend. So everything going very, very well at the moment for Steve Clark and his Scotland side. Let's speak to Michael Grant of The Times, who, of course, watched both games. I've got to ask you, because they did ride their luck at times, did Scotland deserve it? Yeah, that's a good question, <laughs> actually. You know, I was actually <laughs> thinking about this when I was trying to write my match report, because I think Ukraine deserved to win the match. But, but what I would say is I think Scotland earned what they got. They, they, they really fought hard and, and they, they showed tremendous character. I mean, they didn't, they didn't play particularly well. I don't think they kept the ball nearly as well as they had in the previous matches and didn't offer anything like the attacking threat that they had. But there was just a kind of stubbornness about them and a, and a, and a determination to, to just keep fighting in there and hanging in there. It, it, you know, I, I think I mentioned it in the, in the report, but I mean, every minute, Felt like half an hour in that, especially in that second half. I'll be honest, it did feel like a Ukraine goal was coming. You know, Scotland got a little bit ragged at times, but they just held on there. And, and I think eventually you could sense that Ukraine began to lose a bit of heart. They just didn't think it was coming. So, yeah, it, 
did they deserve it? Maybe they didn't deserve the, the the point they got, but but by God, they deserve I think to uh, to get the rewards that came from uh, what what has been a terrific Nations League campaign for them. Gregor, you must be pleased with it. Um, you can answer that question if you want whether they deserved it, or you can answer yes. my 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 next <laughs> question, which is which is what what was key to it? What was key to them um, coming top of their group for you over the campaign? Well, I think you could split it into two two parts as well. It's like, it's after the disappointment of the Ukraine game in. You know the, the the qualifier. Sorry, that that was a huge disappointment, and the way they've responded has been outstanding. Because in the first game against Ukraine, we were you know really on the front foot, dynamic, pressed them. Against Ireland, there was still kind of real energy about the team, and it was and this was complete, something completely different. This was like the backs to the wall, guts, and you know sticking your body and face and whatever in where it hurts. <laughs> and also against the kind of backdrop of I think ten players out. A back four that had never played together, debutant in, in Porteous, Jack Henry, who's, who's like who's been brilliant in all the games. I think he's played 97 minutes of football. He played 90 for uh, Club Bruges, and then he's gone alone to Cremonese in, in Serie A, and he's only played seven minutes for them. So like Greg Taylor, another one who's come in with, and, and Aaron Hickey as well. You know, these are, this is not our first choice back four. We've conceded one goal. So really, you know, that's probably the, the starting point and the answer to that question is. We looked, we looked solid, and although we did ride our luck, we've we've kind of we've made it look like that Ukraine game in the playoffs in in June was was a blip, a bit of an aberration. It wasn't, you know, some doubt started to be to be to be aired about about Clark and whether he, you know he just signed a new contract and stuff. That's all been put to bed. It's, this is still a team that's on the up and, and, and progressing really well. Michael, I wanted to come on to the point Greg has just alluded to there. I remember speaking to you after that defeat to Ireland in June and kind of talks around Clark and his future, and which seemed strange to me because obviously the last few years have been seen generally as a success. What is there anything specific that he's done in recent games to change things around? Is it is it a bit of good fortune? Is it tapping into that kind of Scottish grit and determination? Is he brought in new players? What is it that's changed in the last few games? I think the main the main change, Tom, has been the, the change to the system. Um, mm. He he has pretty much always been a back three uh, guy for Scotland. He, he did start playing back uh, with a back four, but he then switched to a back three, and he played that in twenty nine games in a row. But um, Andy Robertson's obviously been missing from this camp, and um, he looked at the what happened in the Ukraine game in the summer when he actually changed formation during the match, but too late to save it, and um, he, he he reverted to a back four for this uh, for this triple header, and it, it has worked. I mean, it's a shame because you know he's amassed more injuries because Nathan Patterson was lost after the first game, Kieran Tierney lost after the second game. So as Gregor said, it was a it was a cobbled together, thrown together back four that never played together last night. I, I think the one thing that Clark has has um, always had, he's always had the support of the players. I think they've always bought into him and. And respected him, and um, gone with him, you know. And and if he changes the system, they're okay with that. The the, the summer was so desperately disappointing. It was two no shows, really. They didn't they didn't turn up against Ukraine. I think some of us were wondering, well, me. Maybe this team has, maybe this team and this manager have peaked together, and 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 they won't come again. But the last the last seven days have been a, a great kind of resurgence in that sense. Uh, th- those two defeats are the only two uh, losses Scotland have had in the last fifteen matches. You know that, that that that's pretty impressive, and I think that we can now say that that Clark has built up a good body of work as a Scotland manager. And uh, what he what he said to us last night after the game was that um, he's looking for more to come. You know, I mean, there were so many rewards 
from from the result last night in terms of a playoff place, in terms of a pot two seeding. I'll be honest, I did ask him about whether he enjoyed the fact that we'd be going up to the Group A and, and England were coming down to B, but he, he, he wasn't indulging us in any of that. Mm. I think the fans like the fans like that a bit of fun, but uh, he, he's not really at all interested in that, to be honest. But yeah, listen, it's an exciting time for Scotland and um, the rewards from last night are, are, are going to be significant and, and long-running. I was going to say next, the, I think one of the positives must be, albeit enforced, some of the young players, Greg, are coming uh, through with Scotland are pretty exciting. Um, look like they could have some pretty bright futures, a number of them as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, take, I look at right back and I just go go back not so long ago and we were playing Stephen O'Donnell at right back and he was, everybody was kind of pointing, he, he, did, he put in a real shift, he did a, did a, put, put some great performances as well. But he was playing for Kilmarnock at the time and now he's at Motherwell and like touching 30. And now suddenly we've got Nathan Patterson who's had a brilliant start Ever and yes, he's been injured, and then you come in and it's hickey. It's two players playing every week in the Premier League. Like we've got about a dozen players playing in the Premier League at the moment, and then you you look at Callum McGregor as captain in a team in the Champions League in Celtic. Other players that seem to kind of step up their game, and when they play for Scotland, like John McGinn, he's not been a great time for for Villa, but he's he always produces for Scotland. So. There is something about, as you say, it's not. It's not like this is going to be a flash in the pan. There are some. There are some young, some young players who, kind of, only at the start of their Scotland journey, and there are some others who consistently show up and turn up when they when they have to. So, absolutely, I think. I think as Michael says, there's the, the benefits from this is not just winning one game and top going going to the the, the top the top league in the in the in the nation's league it's it's all the rest that comes with it and for the next couple of years really it's, it's a huge result you missed out calvin ramsey there the liverpool fans are going to be after us you know they can't they can't see one of their <laughs> right backs left out of any conversation let alone team or squad oh my uh, any anyway um listen there was one thing that i wanted one person that i wanted to talk to you guys about because craig gordon in the scotland goal on pure talent alone I actually, you know, even his time in the Premier League, really unlucky with the the arm break that he had when he was at Sunderland. But I just, you know, to see him keep going, keep performing, I I just think it's such a nice thing to see. And he had a big impact last night as well. So I just wanted to give a special mention to him because I I do think, yeah, well, what a guy, Craig Gordon. Anyway, listen, Scottish football, how big is this? How big has the last few months been for Scottish football as a whole, uh, as a whole, we know Rangers and Celtic in the Champions League doing well as well. Steve Clark as well talking about the the Euro twenty twenty four playoffs, saying we won't need it this time around. I mean, there's a confidence, there is an air of confidence in Scottish football at the moment. How, how good is it, Michael? Yeah, it's great. I mean, we know what usually happens when Scotland f- f- feels good about its football team. You know, we we, we get a collective national slap in the face along <laughs> b- 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 before uh, before we're very much older. But um, in fact, I've even even heard somebody saying this morning that um, the, the the downside of us being in pot two is that some some really good teams have been knocked knocked into pot three. <laughs> so uh, we could get um, we could get Norway and Holland, for example, in pot three if we're if we're unlucky and. Uh, of course, we tend to think that we are unlucky, but it, yeah, it, it, it's really it's really exciting. You, um, you know, securing the pot two seeding, I think, is is absolutely crucial. It, it, it's a young, you know, largely young group of players. You know, they're all in their they're all in their twenties. Even even Robertson at uh, at the, the top end of the scale is only about twenty eight. You know, the manager wants to be around for a while yet. He's talking about wanting to take the team to to Germany for the for the Euros. Um, 
Yeah, listen, it's really saying the, the, the support has been terrific. The attendances have been terrific at Hamden. I think sometimes the Scottish team has to kind of fight for its prominence, um, you know, when the when the media is kind of dominated by Rangers and Celtics, uh, you know, um, endless battle. But uh, I, I think Scotland right now are, are substantial. And I think that's a team that, uh, that the country can enjoy at the moment, to be honest. OK, I think you're absolutely right. You've nailed it there. Um, listen, congratulations to Scotland up to the top tier in the Nations League. All going well for Steve Clark uh, and the Tartan Army as well. So that's a positive to end our discussion uh, on the international fixtures. Um, plenty more still to come on the Game Podcast. But remember, if you're enjoying us, make sure you're subscribed. We'll be talking about the big games in the Premier League, the North London Derby, the Manchester Derby too, next. Right, let's take a look at some of the big games in the Premier League this weekend as it returns after the international break. And it returns with a huge game, first versus third, as Arsenal hosts Tottenham Hotspur in the North London derby. And it's being billed as the biggest North London derby for quite a while. Although I have to say, I think the last one was bigger. So I'm putting that to bed straight away because (laughs) at this point in time, they both look like they could be comfortable top four finishers at this point in time. So I should ask, Who, which team is this game more important to at this point and why? That's the question for you two guys. I've dropped you on the spot. Gregor, (laughs) I'll start with you. I think probably Arsenal in terms of the positivity of their start and keeping the momentum and actually probably, as you say, putting a marker down and saying this is not just about scraping into the top four, but saying we're going to be pushing the league, whoever's going to be title challengers. For, for a considerable part of the season. I don't think anyone's getting carried away and saying that they're going to win the league, but they could they could go into deep into the season being within touching distance and actually being being about looking up rather than looking over their shoulders for for the top four. So I think that would be that's a big thing, big thing. But also recent record hasn't been great against Spurs and Antonio Conte. Spurs are in another a different position in that they are they've not really hit the heights. But they're still just on their on their coattails, and obviously they could go above them. So it's I would still say that it's probably Arsenal. It's more important for Arsenal, but it's a huge game, and as it probably is the biggest North London derby in, in in recent memory. It's hugely exciting, I think. Firstly, I mean, as a as an editor and a journalist, even there was a part of me that even you saying first v third, Hugh, kind of got me more excited about it as a game because you you know you alluded to it there. Games previously between these two sides have been like, who's going to pinch fourth and who's going to rise up to fifth from sixth and things. It's like first v third. I know it's early in the season. I would agree with Gregor, it's more important for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal just purely because of how long each manager has been in charge. I think Tottenham and Conte are still riding that wave of excitement and, you know, new manager feel. They've signed a lot of players in the summer. So I think the kind of level of pressure and expectation is slightly less on them. Arsenal being top of the table going into this game. Yes, there is a goodwill around the Arsenal side and Arteta at the minute, but he has, as we alluded to in the preview shows, been in charge for a while. You know, he's got to hit top four, ideally a bit better. So I think he he's the one... For, who, for whom this game means means a little bit more. It's interesting. I, I might say in terms of the relationship with the fan base so far this season, it's probably bigger for Antonio Conte and Spurs because I don't think they have hit the heights. Like you mentioned, they haven't played particularly fantastically, even though they scored six the last time out. I think a lot of Tottenham fans felt that they were going to take a leap forward this season. You know, I had Tottenham fans talking about the league title before a ball was kicked, you know, and then being in the hunt for it. 
But certainly, I think at the moment, you know, the mood of the fans is almost like, well, we're getting results. We're getting results. But I yeah, don't think they've yet seen third, them. And third. Like, I know, but uh, they haven't yeah. yet seen the football. I don't think they could say they've seen the football that's going to bring them a trophy yet. You know, no, I, I haven't seen it. So not, if you lose very, to Arsenal, yeah. if you lose to Arsenal and you don't play with any particular style, you maybe defend the entire game against a North London rival who is playing at the moment pretty lovely football to watch. Do you walk out of that stadium almost angry that Conte hasn't you hasn't developed you further? Potentially, but I think as well, when you think about this as a big game, you know, your televised game at a prime slot on a weekend, the other thing for these two managers is, you know, to use my favourite word, narrative. The narrative around Conte is that he gets results in these big games. He has done that already, you know, with that comeback draw at Chelsea when ultimately, as you say, Hugh, they were, they were played off the pitch, really, but they got a result. Now, the narrative, and, you know, he's done it before with Tottenham, and with other clubs, the idea around his teams is that they get results in these big games. The idea around Arteta, the only points they've dropped this season is in a big game at Old Trafford when he got his decisions wrong at one all. So that that is that I think folds into the conversation about who for whom it means more. Because if you come away from this game and say Arsenal have thrown away a lead and drawn, or maybe even been beaten, that conversation rears its head again. Whereas you won't level that at Conte, even if they even if they lose. Even if they lose, he'll still be Antonio Conte, big game manager. You know what you're saying about the, the football that, that that Spurs are playing. I don't think that matters on this occasion. Actually, I think as to, as Tom kind of alluded to there, if we wouldn't be surprised to see Arsenal dominate the ball to probably have more, maybe even have more chances. Spurs to be be a, a threat on the break. It's worked so far, but as Tom said, it didn't against Manchester United. They, they hit them in the, you know with the sucker punches, and it's quite easy. It would be quite easy to see to imagine. Tottenham doing the same. Is that how you think the game will be played out? Uh, Tottenham on the counter-attack, Arsenal dominating? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think, uh, I think, think Spurs are... That, that's the way that Conte is going to set up in a lot of these games against the toughest opposition. I think... I actually think their difficulty more long-term is going to be, is going to be sometimes breaking down the weaker opponents. I think we saw that against Wolves, for instance teams who are willing to sort of soak up pressure and actually do this, do what they do to, to the bigger teams to hit them on the break. But I think, I think that's what Conte does. He wants to be, you know, obdurate and, and sit in and make life difficult and make it into a war. He's used that word so frequently. He calls it, <laughs> he wants to see a war in a sporting way. He always adds that kind of, <laughs> sort of token gesture at the end. He wants to see a real war, I think. If he turns it into that with Arsenal, then it gives Spurs a better chance. That's, that's the key for Arsenal, though is to ignore that that rhetoric and that kind of that that feeling on the pitch that you know we think back to that um performance against Manchester City at the Emirates where they were really really good but Gabriel got sent off complete idiocy and you felt that kind of whipping up of the tension and the you know fevered nature which was and that was only against City you know this is a North London derby if if Arsenal fall into that then I think they can be in trouble if they play to the level they've been playing at this season you know if you think about the way they dispatched Brentford with such ease and such control. I'm not saying Brentford and Tottenham are the same type of team, but they have similar qualities in the terms of the intensity of the way they play, how the, how well they can be organised at times. And Brentford had no answer to Arsenal. If Arsenal focus on that and don't get drawn into the war, the battle, you know, the scrapping and things like that, if they don't get wound up by my mate Richarlison, 
like then they can win the game, I think. It's definitely going to happen, Tom. That's unfortunate. <laughs> um, out of interest, you have made me think, look, which of these two managers is getting the first yellow card, if not sent off in this game? Because there's going to be a lot going on on that, on that touchline. Mikel Arteta versus Antonio Conte. Who's going to be running down the touchline in celebration, jumping into the fans? Who's going to be the first one to push? Who's going to do an extended handshake? you know, and just look into the eyes menacingly of their counterpart. Who's it going to be, Tom? My head says Mikel Arteta. I really don't want it to be, but you can just see it, can't you, as you say. I, I mean, I'm saying this from the point of view, you know, I, I said a lot last season, I'm such a big fan of the Mikel Arteta at Arsenal story, if you like, and I really want not just him, you know, think about players like Granit Xhaka, Gabriel, you know, players who've been so big for them this season. I so want to watch this game and see such professionalism such clever play, like, you know, maybe maybe even some S-Housery towards Tottenham that gets Tottenham players booked. That's where Arsenal need to be. And Arteta needs to mirror that on the touchline. That's it. <laughs> it's, just, you know, it's just not going to happen, is it? But I'd, it would I'd be amazing if it did. I'd love to know what his team talk's going to be like as well. I've been seeing all these in the documentary now and the, the variants and the cartoons. <laughs> What's maybe his cartoon going to be before this game? I want maybe to know. it should just be... Lads, it's Tottenham, and that'll be it. You know, the fa- the famous Conte like a sort of general's yeah. outfit, saying talking about like with war and like. A f- <laughs> but it's hugely <laughs> exciting, isn't this, it? Lads, we've got to stay clear of this. Stay at the it's war. It's hugely exciting, isn't it? And I think uh, I I can almost feel myself getting excited for the game. As I say, Hugh, you teed it up, and like this conversation, this is one of the most exciting games of the season so far for me in terms of intrigue, interest, teams playing at quite a high level. Well, they'll push each other. And that is that if Arsenal and Tottenham fans are listening, I can allow them a little moment to just sit back and reflect. It's first v third. You're two of the most hotly anticipated and exciting teams in the league. That's a great place to be. Just just try and think about that for a minute before you then go back to the, oh my God, I hope we win. Expect peak Barclays is the advertisement. <laughs> I think. What do you think the score will be, Gregor? Um, God, I hate doing scores. I'd I probably know. go. <laughs> we know it. you do. That's why we. Ask I'm gonna you. go. I'm gonna go two all. Two all. Oh, entertaining. Two one Arsenal. Come on, Mikel. I'm backing you. Ooh. Come on, Mikel. Come on, Granite. I'm backing you, boys. Don't let me down. <laughs> I'm going for. This is my main prediction. Red card anytime. The team that has a player sent off will be the team that loses the game. That's all I'm gonna say. Don't know who's getting sent off. Don't know who's winning. But I think there'll be a red. I think it's gonna be tasty. There's Pete Barclays and, and tastiness going on at the weekend as well. Manchester United get another opportunity to surprise us in the Premier League as they go to Manchester City off the back of four wins on the bounce, including wins over Liverpool and Arsenal as well. And I have to ask you, Tom, if Manchester United can win what for me is their toughest game of the season, would it signify truly a new Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag? No, I don't think so. Because Manchester United over the past few years have picked up surprise results against Manchester City. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's teams were great at it. What What is interesting to me, you, you know, you talked about that run um, that they've had. It's a long time since that win against Arsenal now. I know they've had uh, Europa League games in between, one of which was a defeat, of course, against Sociedad. I do wonder whether they'd built up a little bit of momentum. And I mean, you know, Gregor, you can tell me if I'm completely wrong here, but, you know, you've you've had a break You've had a postponed game, of course. You've had an international break. In terms of that momentum that they built up and the confidence they'll have had off the back of that Arsenal win, will that have will that have dissipated? Will that have gone completely? 
or does it not matter when it's a derby game? I, I just I, part of me worries for United that that'll be a factor in that it's all been disrupted, international breaks, and yeah, it's kind of like starting again. No, I don't think so. I think obviously it's been a been a really positive period for Ten Hag, and I, I don't think I think when it's positivity like that, it kind of it's hard to sweep away just from just from a break. I think when it's the other way around, when you're you're kind of you're on a bad run, sometimes a, a break can clear the head. It can have a positive effect. But I think the other way around, no, I think I think United are still in a good place despite the the sort of lengthy break. But this is a this is just a very different test for them. And one of the things we're you know we're th- I think Christian Eriksen is going to be really important in this game because Manchester United. He's I've said I said from the start of the season he's been. Someone I didn't think is going to kind of last in that position, <laughs> and he's making me look, look like a bit of an idiot because he's been outstanding. Probably United's best player, I think. And if they're to have any control in the game, and to have any, as he as he showed against Arsenal as well, the kind of forward mo- the moments where he he turned kind of a little change over, a change in you know transitions or any any little momentary kind of period where they can keep possession, and he can he can break the line to play the forward pass. So important. He's really the only player that I, that Manchester United have that can do that. I think it'd be interesting actually to see how to see how City try and close him down. Well, you say try and close him down. That's part of the problem, isn't it? Because that, and I'm not saying that the City and the, the scouting team will have needed the break to work that out, but it has been so obvious, hasn't it? And as you as you alluded to, a lot of Manchester United fans on my uh, Twitter timeline pointing out how wrong we all were about Ericsson and his move to Manchester United and how costly it could be for his career. That has been the one... I mean, I'm doing Ten Hag a disservice there, but that's been the clear tactic, hasn't it? Ericsson deep, finding those split line-splitting passes, particularly to Fernandez. That was a feature of the play against Arsenal. James Gearbrandt wrote about it in his football newsletter for the Times on Monday. If there's any coach at any team that can stop that, it's City. You can just see Bernardo Silva nipping at his heels all game when United are in possession and potential turnovers. That, that again... I'm not. I'm not doing being doom and gloom for Manchester United. They have been much better in recent weeks under Ten Hag, but I wonder whether Gregor, you're saying about Eriksen will be so important. I think they might have to have another plan. They might have to have another way of playing because it has been a little bit the only way of playing, and it's been great. But City are going to clamp down on it surely with the way that they can press and the way that they can harry players. And Pep Pep's going to be all over it, isn't he? Surely, Hugh. It will be tough for Manchester United for sure. Guardiola. And his team at the moment. The thing that I dislike about Manchester City at the moment, I say not about them, about the footballing world when it comes to Manchester City, is the idea that them winning the Premier League title is such a foregone conclusion that it's already a procession. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just the impact that Erling Haaland's made. But I do think Manchester United have an opportunity to... And I, I honestly... Eric Ten Hag isn't that kind of manager. doesn't seem to be that kind of manager that barely gets up off his seat and... Uh, you barely see a change in in facial expression from him throughout the course of a game. But Man United need to spoil this game, and they need to be really aggressive in this in this match, and they need to give Manchester City no time. If you allow Kevin De Bruyne to get his head up, he will find Haaland. Haaland will find the back of the net. I mean, it's literally you have to have a plan to to swarm to suffocate Manchester City now. That's just a plan. Um, most teams would want to do that. Most teams can't. I, I, I would find it to be very difficult that anyone can stop Manchester City this weekend. I don't see how Manchester United can do it, despite the fact that they have beaten good sides, albeit Arsenal are not in Manchester City's realm as yet. And Liverpool were out of form. And let's be honest, Manchester United defended 
pretty well in both games, played on the break. You'd have to hope Marcus Rashford has another blinder. Um, I, I don't see how we stop what Pep's got. To be perfectly honest, he's just, he, you know, he's the best, in my opinion. Thinking about our conversation around the North London derby and the kind of fevered anticipation, you're saying there's going to be red cards, clashes on the touchline. Is, is it just me? I mean, I grew up in Salford and got lots of friends who are Manchester United and Manchester City fans. But does it feel like the intensity is a little bit lowered or is this the first time that we might see that kind of level of aggression, if you like? Might we see a red card? Because it feels like this game, this derby, has been a little bit muted in terms of the intensity and the passion. Or is that mm. have I got that wrong? No, no, you're right. And I think it was weird. It, there was no intervening period where the two teams were on an even keel. Hmm. They passed like ships in the night. Manchester City just became, during the course of probably two seasons, you know, we all think back to the 6-1 as a changing of the guard, if you like. They became the team to beat in the Premier League, while Manchester United became pretty much no marks. There was never a period where you were going into the game. It was either Manchester United were going to win them for, what, 20 years? And then it suddenly became Manchester City are going to win them and they're the favourites. And it never really felt, although it is a great derby match and the fans think it's a it's a massive deal. In, in terms of the football, you'd have to say Manchester United are underdogs, massive underdogs in this game. I can't remember when they were favourites for it, even though they've had those shock results in the match. It's not to say that they can't get a result, but you never go into it thinking you know, it's going to be guts and glory and, and Manchester United are going to win. You know, it, it doesn't feel like that at the moment. It's it, it, In a way, it's lost its intensity because there's a real, at least for me, you have this sort of feeling of of almost like sadness, like, oh, they're Manchester City, but they're, they're, but they're not Manchester City. Do you know what I mean? They're Manchester City, but they're not Manchester City. I hate to go back to it again, but this is not main road Manchester City and these aren't those games. And I do think that the ownership group, if you like, of Manchester City and the speed with which they've become you know, one you, of the big clubs. You could see no, that. But it's true. It's true. Could, no, but it's true. It's true. What do you have with Liverpool? Manchester United too. Well, no, because because Manchester United became a big club over what sixty years, and, and yeah, and they swept it all away in the space of a decade. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. No, but I think listen, I'm talking purely from a Manchester United perspective. Liverpool and Manchester United have that history of building themselves into huge clubs in world football, and it feels like it's the game between England's two best sides. And although the Manchester Derby is the Manchester Derby, you, you know, you still remember the fact that they were in the third division or they were in the championship for a long time. And they weren't, you know, even when they came to the Premier League, they weren't going to beat Manchester United. And then suddenly, and you can underline the fact that Manchester United have been very much involved in this process, City are the dominant team. I'm not saying it's not a great Derby match, but yeah, it, it just, they aren't Liverpool. That's the only way that I can sum it up. You know, it is not a game at Anfield. So we'll see. Time for a prediction then, Hugh. You bottled it on the North London derby. I'm going to ask it, so you have to give one. Uh, I'm going to go 3-1 Manchester City in this game. Yeah, I, I think if Manchester United had come into it before the international break, if you like, hadn't had some time apart, then maybe off the back of that momentum rolling, um, the performances would stay the same. But I actually think they'll they'll be affected by the fact that they haven't been together for too long to go in and and beat her and, and look, look again I could be wrong because they've done it before but in my mind it's a tall order to go and beat Manchester City right now but I would have said that ahead of the games against Arsenal and, and Liverpool as well anyway your predictions Gregor I'm going 2-0 because four of the last five have been 2-0 to, yeah. to one, one team or another <laughs> and I think that actually speaks to what what you've we've just been talking about basically is that either Manchester City score first and absolutely toy with Man United and maybe mm. add a second later on, or Manchester United score often on the break 
then City have to come out of them and they might never nip another one. And actually, very little has changed because as much as Ten Hag is a new era, what we've seen after the shocker of a start is I'm going back to some semblance of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's football and I think we'll see it again. So don't ask me who it's going to be for, but it's going to be 2-0. <laughs> I'm going 2-1 City. I think United, as much as I was alluding to the need for added tactics other than the kind of Ericsson pivot role, I think they'll be in the game. And I think they'll I think they'll score, but I think City will have too much fun. Okay. All right. Two great games, the North London Derby, the Manchester Derby, uh, for us to react to on Monday. So, of course, we will discuss both of those. Uh, before we go, though, it's time for us to get your vote. Now, what I mean is there's no general election called early or anything like that. We'll have to wait a few more weeks, I think, for that. Um, but it's time for our Player of the Month nominations, alternative Player of the Month, where, where you guys get to decide in the Times app, who you think should be the player of the month. We nominate, you decide, okay? That's how it works. Let's start with someone who's absent from the podcast. Our beloved Alison Rudd has sent us her nomination. To be honest, I'd be happy if Son Heung-min was player of the month every month. If I could sign one player for Liverpool, if I was in charge and director of football, it would be him. So imagine my delight when, having been deemed suddenly rubbish, having failed to score in the first eight games of uh, the season, he's put on the bench, he comes off the bench against Leicester and scores a beautiful, tense and important hat-trick. Took him 30 minutes and 21 seconds to do it. And the way his teammates celebrated, you could tell, if we needed telling, that he's so immensely popular in the dressing room. He's the player with the most beautiful of smiles, so everyone was delighted for him. And then just to secure his place as player of the month, he scored a wicked free kick for his country against Costa Rica and showed that uh, he's going to set the uh, World Cup alight as well. So I don't really think there's any doubt who the player of the month for September is. So nomination number one is Hyung Min Son. You know, just scored a hat-trick in the previous game. So pretty alternative there. Alison Rudd sticking her <laughs> neck out, of course. I'll go next because, I, I listen, I wanted to say Marcus Rashford of Manchester United. Maybe not. I think he played too well. Certainly comeback player of the season so far for me. Christian Eriksen, four wins in a row. You mentioned it, Gregor, composure, intelligence, calmness to the Manchester United midfield, underlining what a quality player he is. But I have gone for another one of the Manchester United players who went maybe a little bit under the radar because Raphael Varane is a player that when he signed for Manchester United, there was so much expectation on him. He has been hammered. Thankfully, Maguire has played worse, so it's maybe deflected some of the attention away from the fact that in his first season, Rafa Varane wasn't up to speed with the Premier League. He didn't look anywhere near the player that had won four Champions League titles while at Real Madrid. Just didn't look close to it. And it looked like Manchester United had basically signed a dud. Now, in the first two games of the season, nothing seemed to change. But actually, in his last six games, he's only conceded two goals for club and country, Premier League, Champions League as well. And his area of the pitch, and I'm saying this as a Manchester United fan, is now getting that aura of calmness around it where when the ball goes into his vicinity, you don't panic at all. You know, that is the player that Manchester United thought they were investing in. A player that you know was a, an 8 out of 10 each and every week. Still more to come from him if he can stay healthy. But I've gone for him because I actually think he's been he has been a central part 
of Manchester United turning things around. Maybe it's the fact they're defending a little bit deeper, playing on the counter-attack, but I think marshalling that Manchester United back line with some new players in it, some new faces in it, um, he's been brilliant. So I've gone for Rafa Varane, vote for him. Don't vote for anyone else. <laughs> Hugh was picking a Manchester United player. You might not be enthusiastic about England, but it's great to hear, isn't it, Gregor? <laughs> well, I don't fucking kind of live up to that one. Um, I'll go seen as it is alternative. Although, actually, actually, I think he has had nomination in, in the real thing too. I'm going for Alex Awobi, who has been a bit of a perplexing player for much of his career, let's be honest. He's 26 now, three years since he signed for Everton for what was an eye-watering £35 million pounds at the time. It's kind of typical signing of that era for Everton. Good player, absolutely. He knew he was a good player, but my God, that was a big fee. He's had four different permanent managers in that time. He's played just about every position in the pitch. He was a, a wing-back for a you know, relegation battle. It's probably not what he envisaged when he signed there. And now he's got another kind of new lease of life in central midfield. He's played every minute for Everton there. And he's been outstanding. And this, I know it's been a strange month. There's only been a couple of games, but he's played a big role in uh, a nil-nil draw against Liverpool in the Merseyside Derby. He was brilliant against West Ham, got the assist in that game. If you go back to August 30th against Leeds, I know we're tipping into the month before there, but he was he was brilliant against Leeds as well. He got another assist and they were trying, basically trying to kick him off the pitch. I think he's got a new lease of life. It's a new position for him. He knows he's kind of a main man in that team now. And... He's never never had crazy numbers. He's, I think he got 15 goals and 27 assists for Arsenal in 149 games. That's not great for an attacking player. And he's only got seven goals and 10 assists and 105 for Everton. As I said before, it's been a, an up and down time. But I think his influence on that team now, his kind of ability to to drive forward from, from deep or those kind of transitions and playing Mope, playing Gordon, playing Gray... Is going to be a key, uh, key weapon for Everton this season. So uh, he's also becoming a bit of a fan's favourite, which he certainly wasn't until quite recently. And his work rate has been immense too. You know that that kind of ugly side of the game, because Everton have been pretty ugly a lot of the time. Let's be honest. A lot of the time it's about tracking back and doing doing that side of the game. And he's really shown he's willing to do it now. So seeing a new side of Alex Awobi, and he's my alternative player of the month. Honestly, what are you look like? Guy who scores a hat-trick, guy who's won the World Cup and a guy who I'm pretty sure he's been nominated for Player of the Month in the genuine <laughs> awards. Like, let, don't worry, guys. I'm here to actually You're pick gonna win some it. alternatives. <laughs> don't worry. I'm, I'm actually here. Uh, I've got some honourable mentions for Tyrone Mings. I think in Villa's central defence, lost the captaincy. Obviously, that was a big part of discussions in the summer. He's been excellent of late, particularly in that win uh, against Southampton, which was so important for Steven Gerrard. The Everton player you should have nominated, Gregor, James Tarkovsky, very important to them this season. Excellent signing in the summer. Um, and it allows me to mention my favourite former Premier League team, Burnley as well. What a great, clever signing he was. But no, I'm going to go for someone who's so alternative, guys, that he's actually suspended for this weekend's game. And that is Jao Palhinha, the midfielder from Fulham. What a start to the season. All action. He's been one of the bright sparks I think, Hugh, you've mentioned already that he could be a player that could be linked if he continues to perform as he has done Where with a move further on. Checking the stats, as I always like to do, he's top of any player in the Premier League for tackles this season. He's made 32 uh, tackles one. He's also top with 20 above any other player, defender, midfielder or forwards. 
and he likes a booking. He's already picked up five, so he's suspended for this weekend's game. So I thought I'd get him a mention now while I can because he's not going to be uh, on our uh, radar this weekend. And particularly for that finish against Nottingham Forest that I've already mentioned, running onto the ball, smashing the ball home, running towards the fans, beating his chest, beating that Fulham badge in brilliant summer signing fashion. I've only been here two minutes and I'm already a legend. <laughs> Xiao Palhinha, this month's Alternative Player of the Month. It's a no, okay. no contest. All right. So the Fulham yellow card machine is on your list of nominations. Alex Awobi used to be an Arsenal reject, now an Everton hero. Rafa Varane looked in pieces last year, now looks like a Rolls Royce. And Hyung Min Son is Allison's nomination, and he is genuine Rolls Royce um, but listen you can check it out at Time Sport we'll post it on social media so follow us on Twitter uh, and on Instagram uh, but we will also be able to uh, make your nominations and make your, your votes on the Times app too so and by the way thank you very much Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark you can check it out you can also subscribe to the Times for more award winning journalism at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game wherever you're listening hit that subscribe button and we will see you on Monday. Thank you for listening. Listener.